0: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
1: Welcome to SpyCast, the original podcast on intelligence since 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. If you're looking for intelligence on intelligence, you've come to the right place. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Coming up next on SpyCast.
2: My concern is, and it pains me a bit, is that The intelligence community, which I love dearly and am proud of everything I did and proud of everyone who continues to serve, is it will take a lot of bureaucratic bravery and it will take a fundamental change, I think, in the way AI has applied to to make it a revolution.
1: Mike Sosong is a former CIA operations officer i.e. he recruited spies and stole secrets, who won the Intelligence Star for heroism in the field. Prior to that, he completed multiple combat tours with US Special Forces. He left CIA to become an entrepreneur, pioneering cyber threat intelligence, and is currently a Senior Vice President for Global Intelligence with Crisis24. In the rest of the episode, Mike and I discuss what AI is and why it matters for intelligence, how AI can help and hinder intelligence officers in the field, the Ukraine-Russia conflict and AI, replicants, machines, and robots, and what you should and shouldn't be worried about. If you're new to the show, please subscribe to ensure you get your weekly high-level debrief. If you're already a member of the SpyCast community, and without you, the community, there is no SpyCast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It'll only take a minute, and believe it or not, it really, really helps. The official podcast of the International Spy Museum, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Rather than getting straight into definitions and so forth, I think a good way to start off would just be, give us an example of how AI is affecting the real world of espionage. So as a former case officer and someone who's now involved in the AI, machine learning, cyber field, um, how is it affecting the world of espionage? Do you have an example, a, a news story, a, a case or an event that you can share with our listeners?
2: Sure, Andrew, and it really came up over the holidays and it, I think it was a great example um, and it just so happened uh, the wife and I were in New York City during the Christmas holidays, and we went to Radio City Music Hall, of course, to see the Rockettes. Uh, about a week later, uh, the crowd queues up for Radio City Music Hall for each session, and there's hundreds of people you know, flowing through multiple doors very quickly uh, into the auditorium. Um, and apparently there was a lady who was with her Girl Scout troop, uh, and she also happened to be an attorney uh, with a firm that had a suit against the parent company that does Radio City Music Hall. Um, and just from having been there and knowing the physical arrangement, you queue up on the street. Five seconds later, you're walking through the doorways, and there's a magnetometer, a you know, metal detector, a few feet in front of you. Uh, And very quickly, uh, you go through the magnetometer and you're in the the music hall. Uh, When this lady goes through with her Girl Scout troop, literally within the 10 seconds it takes to turn into the building and go through the magnetometer, uh, the security very politely uh, intercepted her and explained to her that she was not allowed into Radio City Music Hall due to this pending lawsuit. It was all facial recognition. So in other words, as hundreds of people are flowing into Radio City Music Hall off the street. And I would estimate in 10 seconds time, they were identifying an individual. And the lady said they they knew her name and they approached her by name uh, and um, politely escorted her out of the facility. But I think as a case officer, uh, that kind of sends a chill up your spine when you think about, uh, the ability to very quickly and accurately with large volumes of people in a crowd uh, to be identified. So I think that was a, an excellent example uh, of of how AI used uh, with the database of uh, facial recognition can be a very uh, potentially powerful defensive and offensive tool. So how would that work? So
1: all the cameras would be feeding their information into a central database and then Artificial intelligence would be analyzing that for preset indicators or something? Or how how does it all work? How does that shake out?
2: Yeah, take a step back. um, There's various sources uh, for that information, you know, whether it's a driver's license image, uh, whether it's other documentation. And really, when you think about it, and my numbers aren't current, but I'm confident that well over a couple dozen times a day, you're imaged. Uh, the ATM machine, going through the toll booth, walking in front of an office, uh, going down the neighbor street, and they have um, one of the uh, camera doorbells uh, on the front of their house. So being imaged and capturing those images and those images being available, again, social media, if you post an image of yourself. So there's, there's a large number of sources that are available. Second step is then there's well-established formula to establish a facial geometry uh, which then with the AI capability can very quickly sort uh, among again literally thousands if not millions of images and identify you with a and it will then give a probability that you are who they think you are.
1: I know you weren't involved in this personally but just so I can try to get my head around it so did that mean that AI was set up to look for the specific women, or was it? Were there just a series of filters where, if these types of people come up, pending lawsuits, uh, known felons, whatever, then refuse them access? Or how did the alarm bell go off, and how what, how did they approach her?
2: I would say this is very similar to the uh, the old profile book that the casinos in Vegas and other places kept, where they literally would identify who was a card counter or Uh, some other illegal, and you have to use that term very loosely in Las Vegas, some other illegal reason by why you would not be allowed uh, entrance into the facility. So they have just in turn identified uh, people, and in this case a lady who legally represented her firm, uh, on the the watch list. So it would be, as I say, as simple as that.
1: So basically, as a case officer, this would be a, counter-surveillance nightmare If when you're out there trying to stay undercover, trying to spot, assess, recruit, and run assets, then it's very difficult for you to make your way around a city or, or a country and, and do the work that you're meant to do if you're going to get flagged up repeatedly. So that, that must be very, very difficult. It,
2: it absolutely complicates things. And, and I guess I would harken back to what is good tradecraft uh, without AI facial recognition you still seek to operate uh, in plain view but in in ways that don't alert uh, the attention of, of of anyone who's just casually observing of course if you are under surveillance there uh, they're much more attuned to, to what your activities are so it, it would just be that every country you're in is suddenly a, a hard target country as far as the the aggressiveness of surveillance uh, just because of the, the pervasiveness of of these tools
1: let's take a step back for a second and we are not uh, computer scientists or data engineers or anything but i do think it is helpful to give listeners that don't really know what ai is or have a loose conception of what it is to just give them something to hang their hats on so what are we talking about when we talk about artificial intelligence
2: Um, I'll start with artificial general intelligence, AGI, and that's basically the definition that a computer can handle any human intellectual task. It's memory, creative reasoning, abstraction, basically all the things that you attribute to the dystopian futures of HAL in 2001, A Space Odyssey, or uh, Skynet with the Terminator. There are no AGI systems out there full stop now. I would be the last man to try to predict that future, but AGI does not exist. The next level down would be uh, artificial narrow intelligence, um, and you'll hear it referred to as narrow or weak intelligence, and that's the ability of the algorithm to be able to perform a simple task with a high degree of integrity. Everything we're encountering today is narrow artificial intelligence, uh, Siri, the selection that Netflix recommends for the next movie, uh, robotics in factories, uh, and even uh, self-driving cars, you know, it's, uh, there's a, a hierarchy of, quote unquote, the self-driving part, but even that is considered narrow artificial intelligence.
1: So at the moment, we're working within the narrow or weak artificial intelligence, that's correct?
2: Yeah, that's correct. And if you go deeper, let's say we're in the narrow world, uh, what people are now encountering, and maybe we'll talk later about chat GPT, as basically machine learning using uh, natural language processing. And natural language processing is the ability to communicate with the algorithm, to query it, uh, and in native language whatever it is english or otherwise and so i think that's what also is what's called a lot of the sensation with the public rightly so because the f- interface is much more friendly than trying to write a python script or um, engage um within the programming language so uh,
1: tell me if i've got this right so so we've got human beings who can recognize patterns learn from experience draw conclusions, make predictions, do all of those things. And, and basically, artificial intelligence would be fully achieved when we have computers that can do all of those things that we can do just as well. And am I right in thinking that that moment would be called uh, the singularity when machines are smarter than humans?
2: And uh, Yeah, if we go down that the topic of singularity, that that would be that state. And I think that's, again, a long way off if...
1: If achievable. Okay, if achievable.
2: So, and and another thing that
1: trying to do, I think, is to trying to get it to emulate and replicate human emotions and understand the, as I understand it, they have a very almost Spock-like way of communication. It's just, it's kind of cold, it's based on logic, it's based on reason, it's based on programming, but in the human world there's lots of emotions and facial cues and all these types of things. So I guess one of the holy grails is to try to get machines that can deal with these types of human complexities as well. Is is that right?
2: Yes, and kind of the essence of that is uh, supervised learning and then reinforcement learning. And what that means is, to your point, is emotions are so subjective, uh, even though there, there are cultural patterns, if you will, uh, and then to, to train the algorithm uh, on seeing the, the the micro movements in your face that are distinct to an emotion or at least can be attributed to a person's emotional state. And as with, if we're now talking about reading body languages, any expert will will confirm that it's the holistic approach. It's not that I raised an eyebrow suddenly means... Uh, I'm lying, or I grimace suddenly means you know something else. It's it's the whole, both the context, uh, the circumstances you're in, and then other actions that the individual takes. So when you when you think of that totality, and then you say, okay, we're going to teach a machine to do that, you can see the uh, the complexity of the problem. But that said, uh, these algorithms are are becoming more and more powerful, uh, and the processing power behind it is. Uh, is increasing
1: also as well wow and bear with me here so so in Blade Runner replicants and one of the issues there as the the replicants begin to experience emotions and question their own place in the world and so forth is the thought that eventually there will be machines that can get to that place where they start to Think for themselves and potentially go beyond what we want them to do, or become out of our control. Or, I know this is like completely theoretical, but I'm just wondering what your your take on it is. Uh,
2: well, Blade Runner is one of my favorite movies, but for for, for all those reasons, um, I, again, we we started off the conversation with with AGI, artificial general intelligence, and I think that capability is so far in the future that it would it would be hard to predict that. Um, and I'm, in that sense, I'm just not an authority to to, to make the speculations. So.
1: Wow. And I read something, it was just a few days ago in the news, faces created by artificial intelligence are now more real than the genuine photographs, which is crazy. So uh, something that's artificial is more real than the real. Uh, we're getting down all kinds of metrics like rabbit holes here but it's crazy the way the ground is shifting underneath our feet I think.
2: You bring up a good point and uh, when you speak to uh, faces and recognizing faces uh, you may be familiar with the concept of the uncanny divide or the uncanny delta and that's the idea of when they're looking at robotics or what would be a physical interface between a human like Robot, there's, if they're so close and you can still kind of in your mind say, this is not a human, uh, everybody's okay with it. It's when they kind of get to that 95%, but they still don't quite look human, uh, is when they're creepy. Uh, And so I think part of this effort on the creating the images that are more, look more human than human, uh, is an, an attempt to kind of bridge that divide so that the designers can know what what is creepy and what's not. Just
1: to bring it back to the intelligence community more specifically, help us understand the trajectory of AI and intelligence. So there's all these reports and uh, summaries and briefings coming out just now, but when would this kind of thing pop up on the intelligence community's radar so I believe the term artificial intelligence is invented in 1956 you know and then it's obviously in very early embryonic stages but when does it pop up on the the radar of the IC or when you help us understand that evolution of the development of artificial intelligence out with the IC so just more generally and then the development of artificial intelligence within the IC and how that's mirrored or not mirrored, uh, more general development.
2: Okay, you bring up a good point on kind of how that's evolved. If you even go back to Alan Turin's initial paper back in 1950, which what people refer to as the Turin test and uh, the movie The Imitation Game, at that point, obviously, still theoretical, but that was really one of the first discussions about what AI would be able to to accomplish in how we would interact with with the algorithm. Uh, that evolution really, a lot of it was kind of conflated with just computing power in the, early, in the 50s and 60s, and obviously computers into the 60s and 70s with mainframes were uh, utilized extensively with the intelligence service. There was an AI winner when there were some kind of false starts on how uh, the algorithms would be structured, what path deep learning, and deep learning refers to the levels of the algorithm working, not that deep is better than some other form of of the algorithm. Uh, and then really kind of the last probably six years or so, uh, we came out of the, the AI winter with both computing power, primarily with like systems like AWS, where you can where you can purchase computer power, and then some real breakthroughs on how neural networks work and how deep learning actually evolves and how you, I don't want to start down the rabbit hole, but backpropagation, how you can then start to correct the errors that uh, the algorithm produces. Uh, And so at that time, really at the same time, uh, the, the intelligence community was an early adopter of these processes, and I would say uh, speaking from an outsider now, if you look at the intelligence disciplines, uh, would be signals intelligence would be one of the early adopters. <clears throat> if you think about the problems, and if you want to bucket them into signals intelligence and imagery intelligence and human intelligence, just the magnitude of the problem on the signals intelligence side, uh, in some ways, dwarfs uh, the others. You know, I just saw a statistic the other day that every day there's 80 billion text messages. And so you multiply that by languages, you add in uh, voice calls, you add in file transfers, you add in all the, the metadata that surrounds a communication, and you can just see the magnitude of the problem that's perfectly suited for AI. And then with AI, it's not as simple as looking for keywords, but you then begin to be able to filter and monitor the, the vast amount of information that's, uh, that, that's flowing about for, or obviously for, for key indicators. The
1: 1950 Alan Turing paper that Mike speaks of is called Computing Machinery and Intelligence, and is surprisingly readable. It begins, I propose to consider the question, can machines think? From this we get the famous Turing test, or imitation game, which aims to test the machine's ability to pass off as a human being. Many of you will have interacted with Turing's legacy probably in the last few days, in the form of recapture, That sometimes frustrating hoop you have to jump through online to prove you are not a robot. The capture part stands for Completely Automated Public Turing Test to Tell Computers and Humans Apart. Alan Turing was an English mathematician whose work would prove influential in the future fields of computer science and artificial intelligence. He played a key role in the effort to break the Nazi Enigma Code during World War II. Turing was arrested and punished for homosexuality in 1952 and tragically committed suicide two years later. He was posthumously pardoned, and in 2017, the British government enacted the Turing Law, which pardoned thousands more. He now features on the back of the British £50 note. We'll be right back after this.
0: And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash AI.
1: Just to try to sketch out the broader development again, I'm sorry... I know that this is a lot of work, but I think just because it's so new for many of our listeners, it helps to dig into it a little bit more. So so we have the Turing paper in 1950, and then the 56 conference at Dartmouth where they come up with the term artificial intelligence. And then there are other developments that go on, uh, and then we got up to, I think this is a good example to maybe discuss, we came up to Deep Blue in 97, uh, so Deep Blue is an IBM machine that basically beats the reigning world chess grandmaster Gary Kasparov in 1997. But Deep Blue is the weak or narrow artificial intelligence, isn't it? So could you just maybe discuss that example to help us get our heads around artificial intelligence more generally? And what would be the thinking about Deep Blue? People were thinking, wow, this is something we never thought would happen, uh, a chess grandmaster being defeated by a machine. So yeah, just h- help us kind of understand deep blue and, and the Rubicon that was crossed when, when it beat Garry Kasparov.
2: And I think that, that does give a good illustration uh, about the application, but again, it's still narrow. It was a chess board and I'm probably the world's worst chess player, but you can conceive that there's only a finite number of moves that can be applied. And, What little I know about uh, grandmasters is their ability to use different strategies and different techniques that have been used before uh, is what then gives them the edge and that they play at that level. So, um, again, we're going back to the reinforced learning uh, model. Deep Blue was basically trained to learn every permutation. And when Kasparov did a certain move... It could anticipate. Okay, this is one of three variables that what will be the next five moves. As many grandmasters do, they're thinking several moves ahead, and so I think this was the application that really brought it to the public's attention. Uh, similar models have been used on Go, uh, you know, which is an Asian board game, which is arguably has more permutations and more nuance than chess, and I think it is. I think the grandmaster was Korean and that um, the algorithm beat him as as well. So these, I think it brings to the public eye the capabilities. But again, remember, if you think about a chessboard or a Go board, that's a very finite universe, maybe more than we can comprehend, but it's still a finite universe. And so its application is still narrow. On the other hand, without dismissing the definition of narrow, if you have 20... Uh, algorithms, and each one of them are narrow, suddenly they don't look so narrow if each one of them has a particular task and a particular skill that they accomplish. And let's go
1: on to chat GPT, which you mentioned earlier, which is all the rage in the news at the (laughs) moment. Uh, And in the research for this episode, I actually signed up and I put in, write, I was just being playful, write a sonnet, a a 14-line poem on espionage. And it, it done such a good job. I posted it on social media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. My hopes weren't particularly high, but it was so good. That's the type of thing that it could take human beings years to get that level of fluency, uh, writing poems or and doing all the things that you need to do, but chat GPT, just spat it out in five seconds or so. I'm just wondering, have you used it? Can you tell our listeners what it is and what implications does it have for the intelligence community?
2: Sure, Andrew, and I, I read your poem. You and, oh, you you and okay. ChatGPT are, <laughs> well, are quite eloquent.
1: Well, well, well ChatGPT's poem had nothing to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: you designed the prompt, and that, that's a whole other conversation about intellectual property is to who, who, who owns it. You designed the prompt. No, yeah, chat. GPT, it's, it's certainly the rage. And again, the value of it is it's exposed the broader public to a friendly user interface for, uh, for a narrow AI capability. But uh, ChatGTP is chat generative pre-trained transformer, and that's just the model that was used uh, for what people are using today. Uh, the original GPT-3.0 was, uh, i say it was probably 2000 when it was released, and so this is actually 3.5, and there'll be a GPT-4 uh, probably later this year. And th- there's nothing ominous about a four as much as it'll just have more capabilities. So some of the th- problems people are encountering on syntax are... If you're using stable diffusion on some of the imagery, it's, it'll be a little more uh, def- defined. So, but certainly, chat GTP is, um, is a good example uh, that people are using. I would say in a phrase that it's more heat than light. It is, again, good at narrowly defined tasks. Maybe being generous equated to a smart intern, if you were an intelligence analyst, uh, they still need close supervision, broader education, uh, and reinforcement on what what and how they're writing. But if we want to kind of apply this to to the intelligence process, uh, certainly my company has embraced it fully on using AI to monitor the world uh, and to then begin to aggregate the key indicators that then a human analyst can best, put the pieces together and make, make the, the detailed analysis. But again, as we used the example earlier with uh, signals intelligence about the vast amount of data and the speed with which it's generated, uh, humans can nowhere approach the ability to, to manage that. I'll quote the title of a 60s poem, uh, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. Uh, the idea that uh, the algorithm is doing that first cut uh, according to your criteria, and then it can deliver then to the human analyst a rough approximation. And then when we look at chat GPT, that's really what we get in most cases. Uh, and then the application of the subject matter expert and, and other uh, criteria, you know, our collection requirements, the particular question that the decision maker asks, that will then... Uh, help refine the final product. Wow.
1: And just briefly there, can you tell us what Stable Diffusion is? Sure. Uh,
2: stable Diffusion um, is a similar prompt, but it generates images. Uh, DALL-E D-A-L-L-DASH-E uh, kind of a play on words with wall the, the the movie and dall the artist uh, does similar. You type in a prompt um Mickey Mouse, you know, ascending the the Himalayas in an impressionist style, and it will will generate usually three or four images uh, as its best estimate. So it's uh, it, it's similar to your poem, but for artwork. So now, uh, Andrew, you can start uh, start your own art gallery.
1: That actually says I really want to see that now. Mickey Mouse ascending the, the Himalayas in an impressionist. Uh, I think that might be what I'm going to do after this episode. And just briefly before we move on, one other thing that you mentioned that I meant to just pick up on was neural networks. Can you just tell the listeners what neural networks are?
2: Yeah, and again, uh, the data scientists are usually quite disciplined about the terminology, and it's the the layman such as I and, and the public that usually conflate them. In a short version, and let me me take a step back to to make this as as simple as I can. Let's say you're trying to teach the algorithm to see a a cat uh, to identify a cat. Each neural network, each neural node would be is uh, again this will be oversimplified, but each neural node would be two eyes, uh, four legs. certain height, uh, f- fuzziness, <laughs> and you can go into all the nuance that you want, but then each network and each neural node can only then, in an almost binary way, you can be more complex, but in an almost binary way, two eyes, not two eyes, four legs, not four legs. And so you can just have millions of dimensions, and then the conclusion is cat, not cat. That's... In a, in a very crude manner, what a neural network is. It's just a way of categorizing uh, the, the task that you're trying to teach the, um, the algorithm on.
1: I think it would actually be quite interesting, if you're amenable to it, to tell us a little bit about your company and, and how it uses artificial intelligence.
2: Sure, and no, I appreciate the opportunity to do so. I'm the Senior Vice President for Global Intelligence for Crisis24. It's a Garda World company and we're globally located, Uh, our company provides geopolitical intelligence analysis to 700-plus global organizations, everything from NGOs to to large corporations. So we're a completely open-source, proprietary uh, intelligence company. And we use a combination of human intelligence and artificial intelligence Uh, to produce our our products for our clients on a 24-hour basis. As we've discussed earlier, just the scale of information, the speed of information as it's available has surpassed what a human analyst can do. So we've applied with our data science and artificial intelligence team uh, that capability to our mission. One point I'll make, and I think it becomes clear when people play with chat GPT, the quality of the information that it's trained on is the quality of the information that you get. You know, even decades ago when I was programming, it was garbage in, garbage out. So our company has the the luxury of having 25 plus years of highly curated human intelligence. It's it's a it's a glorious training set, I would place. So our ability to train the algorithm on by country, by event, by security category is really quite remarkable. And we've seen leaps and bounds in the result of that from our, from our analysis.
1: It would be fun to walk through maybe step-by-step step ways in which AI affecting your former job as a case officer. I know there's only so much that you can talk about, but help us understand it. So things like your identity, your cover or legend how you would spot, assess, recruit and run assets. Could AI help you do that? Could it help you spot lies? Could it help you with covert communications? Help us understand stage by stage how you could see AI affect potentially affecting work as a case officer. And it's fine if there's no way that AI could do this, but if there is, it would be interesting to know and maybe discuss the trade-offs like, you could use it for this theoretically, but I don't think it ever will be because blah, blah, blah. Yeah,
2: you no, know, it's an excellent question and one I think frequently about. Uh, as a case officer, you know, for the audience, uh, the job of running assets, uh, recruiting spies and stealing secrets, uh, the application of AI is having a profound effect and will continue to do so. Uh, and in no particular order uh, we mentioned earlier about uh, facial recognition being used to identify an individual. If you're in disguise or if you're just hoping not to be identified, uh, that pervasive surveillance uh, limits your, potentially limits your operational capability when you need to go operational. Uh, if you look at cover and legend, identity that you're assuming in order to operate in a certain place, there's two sides to that coin. If you are operating undercover, uh, you should have a social media presence, and you should have a digital you should have digital exhaust and things about websites you've gone to or purchase records on Amazon. Uh, if you don't, then that can very quickly erode your cover. Let's say I'm, I claim to be John Smith. Uh, from whatever country and in whatever profession, there should be some uh, footprint of that in the digital world. But if there's not, then that, again, it arouses uh, suspicion of the local services. So then and there, uh, and again, all this would be managed by artificial intelligence. It's not somebody trying to read through uh, Facebook pages to identify someone. Uh, when you look at uh, spotting, assessing, and recruiting, it would be similar. We, we've all jokingly probably exclaimed on, uh, we're amazed what people put on social media about themselves and others. And again, uh, as one dimension, that's a, that's a way to spot and assess or look for vulnerabilities or look for access that an individual may have that we're seeking out. So again, you apply the AI algorithm to helping you spot for and watch for these type of capabilities uh, is, is another tool. And again, it multiplies the ability to to look for a, p- a potential asset. For uh, polygraphy, uh, lie detectors, uh, I think that dimension there is just the tools that AI would enable the polygrapher to be able to be a, have a more refined uh, assessment of, of deception detected or, or not detected. When you think of the biometrics that are being observed, uh, again, you could add uh, again facial micro movements. you could add body language, you can add a lot more uh, cues uh, that just even the best polygrapher can't observe simultaneously. So again, if you think from an intelligence point of view, the AI capability is, again, more sets of, of brains and eyes and ears.
1: nQtel was founded in 2016 as a venture capital firm that would invest in high-tech companies, thereby allowing the CIA and the US government to benefit from cutting-edge developments that enhance national security. Or as they put it, combining the security savvy of government and the can-do curiosity of Silicon Valley. AI and machine learning are a huge part of this, along with data analytics, autonomous systems, and what is called the fourth industrial revolution. They are headquartered in Arlington, Virginia, and people like former CIA Director George Tennant and former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mike Mullen are on their board. Fun fact: the Q in NQTEL is a direct play on the gadget man from the James Bond series Q. Links and resources for Alan Turing and NQtel can be found at the Cyberwire.com forward slash podcast forward slash spycast. Is artificial intelligence a revolution that's happening to the intelligence community? How would you categorize it? It's going to rip up the playbook and and so forth, or, or all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is it's not really going to change that much. And obviously, neither of them are probably true. But where would you where would you land on the spectrum
2: for technology in general? I think there's always an evolution. If we look at agrarian societies going to industrial, going to computer, there's there's an evolution. Uh, but there are similar moments, even in 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 those uh, where you have to say, okay, that was the moment things changed. And I would I would say it's it's always you're a professional historian, so you know this better than I. It's it's hard to uh, it's hard to um, read the label from the inside of the bottle when you're still uh, in the middle of something. It's hard to see the the ch- the change that's taking place. But I I do think it is fundamental now. I'll have to get on my soapbox for a moment. My concern is, and it pains me a bit, is that the intelligence community, which I love dearly and am proud of everything I did and proud of everyone who continues to serve, is it will take a lot of bureaucratic bravery and it will take a fundamental change, I think, in the way AI is applied to to make it a revolution. I think it'll be. It, it runs the risk of being. Uh, incremental or even window dressing uh, changes versus really fundamentally advancing our ability to defend our national interest using AI as a tool.
1: At the moment, generally speaking, it's more of an add and stir approach. Let's try to fit it within the structures and the processes and the culture that's already there. I'm speculating here, but I'm just wondering how you see that change coming, if at all.
2: I think the change... Can come and as I say, I'm I'm absolutely committed to the to intelligence community uh, from the outside as a as a public partner. I my strategy is frankly to use the war in Ukraine as the hammer, uh, because when you look at open source intelligence and what is being accomplished uh, there as far as uh, by citizen analyst, I think is unremarkable. Sadly, we have a living laboratory and. In Eastern Europe, but if if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just give some examples of of how that is. I think could be a wake up call for for the IC on on how to apply uh, open source intelligence. Use that as the wedge for some bigger changes. But if you look at just in the early days of the the, the war, the military intelligence analyst would be looking for order of battle and where forces are massing. And you would use overhead systems or maybe a human intelligence analyst or imagery intelligence. Google Maps was reporting the traffic jam at 3 o'clock in the morning on the 23rd of February uh, ac- across the border in-, in Russia from from Ukraine. And previously, the day or two before, social media uh, individuals had taken photographs of uh, infantry fighting vehicles and armored personnel carriers in that same location. So. Uh, There you have it. Google Maps tells us where they're crossing the the border. Uh, In concert with that, uh, you could look at um, where the traffic jams continued and go to some of the commercial satellite companies. And for a couple hundred bucks, I'm suddenly the National Geospatial Agency. I have imagery resolution down to 30 centimeters, which is about a foot. And the evidence is in front of me. I can, I can make that assessment versus national overhead system. Uh, you, you look at uh, signals intelligence mission of where units are inside Ukraine, uh, Russian 19-year-old men being what any 19-year-old man is. They were on VK and Telegram and Instagram and Tinder uh, trying to pick up Ukrainian girls and whoops. They forgot to turn off geotagging, and so a lot of Russian units were identified uh, quite clearly and accurately uh, by just the social media. There's locations where it's a quote-unquote abandoned airfielder facility, uh, and the soldiers have been jogging wearing their Fitbit, and they've basically drawn a box around Building or airfield or um, line of armor uh, that's uh, that's parked in the in the motor pool. Again, all this is open source in- intelligence. You know my favorite somewhat lethal but favorite example is uh, is a young 15 year old boy in Ukraine who, when the Russian armor columns were making advance on Kiev, uh, him and his father, they went out and he flew his inexpensive drone up over the the battle lines. Uh, added the the lat longs using a a, a commercial mapping uh, program and sent uh, the corns to the Ukrainian artillery. And they literally decimated a good session of a Russian armored column, uh, a kid using a $300 drone. And as I joked, it's a good thing it wasn't a school night or or the, the Russians might have taken Kiev if it hadn't been for him and his drone. So when you look at all those capabilities, and I'm not implying... Uh, the IC needs to to uh, start buying uh, three hundred dollar drones, but we've just talked about every one of the ints using commercially available information and and uh, and open source uh, resources to uh, to accomplish that. The, the IC has to get their heads around uh, working with OSINT in in a constructive way. You hear arguments about we need to make another. Discipline another center. Let's form a committee, and and to me that's that's all motion to give the illusion of progress, and that it just needs to be embraced and acknowledged that uh, what is classified should be the minority, closely held and protected, but then the vast majority of information can be achieved through uh, open source partnerships with private companies or just that capability within the IC. One of the reports
1: that I mentioned earlier, so talks about entering an AI era uh, and in that it says that the problem is not the technology, the problem is the culture, so this is a report that's informed by lots of seniors, farmers, and so forth. don't know as someone that that used to be a member of the tribe. why would culture and not technology be the problem
2: I think we touched on it a moment ago when we 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 talked about the the unnatural nature of open information. And there's a bias. It probably is endemic. There's a bias towards the classified information, uh, like it has more more value or merit. I will absolutely agree that there are times strategically that that piece of uh, classified information is absolutely the gem that lets a decision maker make a decisive and bold decision. But... More times than not, it's just a matter of the best vetted information, regardless of, of where it came from. So I think it is culture. If your workday is, uh, I'm a U.S. citizen, I have a security clearance, I'm working inside uh, a SCIF, a Secure Departmentalized Information Facility, I'm on a classified network scene, by and large only, Classified information, uh, which is a TS code word, in uh, a final report. All those things can be an impediment to uh, changing your culture. That's the routine. That's what I know. That's what is the way things are done and have been done for for decades. To say, well, I can just set out it outside in a. In an office somewhere in, in the D.C. area, and, and done the same. You know, good example is my good example is our intelligence team. Uh, are over seventy five percent international citizens; the minority are American citizens. I have no doubt as far as the integrity and reliability and, and intelligence of. Of this intelligence team that we have, but not a one of them get a security clearance, and that has nothing to do with their um, their character. It's just it wouldn't happen. So, if I can take uh, that team, a hundred plus commercial imagery, uh, an AI capability to watch social media, watch. Uh, academic papers being written in, in Amsterdam on Boko Haram in Dutch, presented at a, at a forum in Paris, and incorporated that into my analysis, we're coming real darn close to, to be able to match uh, national systems, I would argue.
1: I think one thing that I wanted to ask was, whenever you do research on AI or you look at AI, one of the things that always comes up is are we all going to lose our job? Is there going to be a time where human beings are or a large percentage of human beings are going to be redundant? Uh, they're not going to be needed anymore because AI is going to come along and do a lot of things, but there's not necessarily going to be replacement jobs because AI will be able to do so much more than we can do and do it better and quicker and with less risk to us. What's your take on that? I mean, either more generally or with regards to the ICs, does the IC need to be slimmer and leaner in the era of AI, or is that not really the right question to ask?
2: No, I think it's a very valid question to ask, and it's certainly on people's mind, and I'll go down both those paths in general and with the IC. In, in general, I'm an optimist. When we looked at the agrarian society going to an industrial society, Agricultural production increased. You need fewer farmers, but then there became jobs in factories, and then factories gave way to to white collar jobs and blue collar jobs uh, became more automated and, and had higher technical requirements, and so those jobs evolved. And I, I think it's the same way uh, with AI: things that that can be repetitive that encapsulating a great deal of information to make a decision that, frankly, the human mind is not best uh, designed for are tasks that that AI will take over. And then we will just move up the stack. And I think that applies uh, with the IC. And I I keep hearkening back to to the intelligence team that we have, but that's the whole objective is I don't want somebody with a PhD uh, in Asian studies having to monitor for indications of a port strike in in Vietnam. Uh, I want them to be thinking about the trends of industrialization in the Asian Tigers and how that will portend the great competition in the theater with the Chinese. That's still a very human task and something that you need a, the human's capability to, to address. So, Can you find economies in the IC? I would think so. But again, hopefully the idea would be is then to apply those those humans to more sophisticated tasks. Help us understand
1: the, the AI landscape with regards to intelligence. So we spoke a lot about American intelligence. How does AI play out across the rest of the world? So it seems like China is going for AI in a big way. Uh, The United States is going for it in a big way. Is AI going to create another level of technological differentiation between great powers and, and the rest? Is AI going to be something for the superpowers and the rich? Are there a lot of barriers to entry? Is it something that it doesn't matter if you're very low in the human development index, you can still use AI and, you know, it's not... Let America do the research, and when it filters out, we will take advantage of it. Help us just understand the effect, not just on American intelligence, but across the whole intelligence ecosystem.
2: That's a very good question, and I would—I'll use the analogy that—that um, that I saw in in Africa. You would go down the street, and there would be literally uh, plain old telephone service wires strung across the trees and across the tops of buildings. Uh, and then you go out into a, a village somewhere and they have they have cell service. So I think what we'll see to some degree with AI similarly is technological leaps. Uh, as, as you implied, uh, America and others will do a lot of the heavy lifting, uh, build out a lot of capability that can then be commercialized and economized. And I think you'll selectively see other intelligence services pick up those pieces and capabilities. So. The cautionary tale for a case officer is don't assume because you're in country X and uh, they're on rolling blackouts. Uh, Don't think that they don't have facial recognition at the airport or they don't have imagery surveillance capability over the apartment building where you're trying to establish a safe house. So I think obviously the preponderance will be in countries that can resource and deploy those capabilities, but I would not for a moment. Uh, assume that, that any operational environment that you will go into can very quickly change over the next uh, 12 to 18 months.
1: Okay, well, um, I think the last thing I wanted to ask you, just as we sign off, I read that something like 28,000 devices work with Alexa. Um, so, uh, what is Alexa? Is Alexa AI, and how worried should we be about its uh, control over these devices?
2: That, that's a good question. I would say there probably are that many uh, apps that can work with Alexa. Everything from your your Fitbit to the to the lights to to, to the home alarm system, uh, Alexa's. Uh, narrow AI—you can easily stump her with a question or a, or a request—but uh, you, you really touch on something that I think is another dimension of uh, the impact on espionage. And when you look at the Internet of Things, the Internet of Things is basically anything other than a computer uh, or a smartphone that that emanates data. Uh, again, that could be the 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 open and close switched on your door—that could be your Fitbit, whatever that may be—and so all of that is now being meshed into the larger body of knowledge that's available out there. So, one, yes, that's just more things to to be aware of, and its potential risk. You know, let's look at it from an operational point of view. If, if I needed to do, you know, what euphemistically call a black bag job uh, on a building, and I know that the that the guards are. Happen to wear fitbits, uh, and if I can access that, I'll just wait till he goes into REM sleep, uh, which is the deepest sleep, and that would be the most likely time for me to enter the building without him uh, awaking and being aware of of what's going on. And so all those things that are emanating information or that we're communicating with uh, potentially hold a hold a risk for for espionage or can be a benefit for espionage.
1: Well, thank you so much for helping us break all of this down. It's been a real pleasure, as ever, to speak to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your
0: podcasts. Coming up in next week's show... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that unit, that exact unit exists. It's okay, a parallel well. unit to the criminal serial killer unit, um, and we use them extensively. So, for example, when I was a supervisor in New York, we had the, uh, the ghost stories cases, the Russian illegals cases up there. We brought the behavioral analysis folks up to New York... We've been looking at these subjects for years. Now we're finally going to get to get in front of them and talk to them. How should we do this? Can we approach it this way? Should we use this wording? There's a lot of psychology that goes into it, and that helps me as a supervisor pick the person that's going to go in the room.
1: Next week's guest is Alan Kohler, FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence, which means he takes the lead in all counterintelligence investigations across the U.S. government. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends and loved ones. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at intlspycast. If you go to our page, thecyberwire.com forward slash podcast forward slash spycast, can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm your host, Sandra Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at Spy Historian. My podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich, and you can follow her on Twitter at E-R-I-N-P-U-B-H-I-S-T. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Minsey, Memphis Von III, Joe Zhu, Emily Coletta, Afua Anokwa... Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Iben. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage related artefacts, the International Spy Museum.